Another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another you edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, you one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't dictate it, it's almost always the case. During my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas, today is Friday, November the 13th. Friday the 13th. Um, I don't know if we've ever done one of these together before on the road, so I'll have to be careful that it doesn't become my unlucky day. This is episode 317 of the Survival Podcast, and uh, we are going to talk today. I did a show about a week and a half ago, 18 um, items for preppers that either get overlooked or you even have them and you don't really identify them as preps or just not commonly talked about, and said, hey, um, let's not start throwing, Jack, hey, you forgot a knife and a gun, right? We That never gets overlooked. So uh, people played by the rules, and we got a lot of suggestions in the comment section. And then I found a great forum thread, and I put together another list of 18. The difference with these 18 overlooked or not considered prepper items um, or just forgotten about or kind of not discussed items is they all come from you, the audience. The first list was mine. I put one together. This list is yours. We're going to do this as the second part of the series. I think it's going to be a fun show, and i got a lot of stuff to talk to you about today. Before that, i got some uh, housekeeping to do. Number one, make sure you're taking care of our sponsors. They support the show. That helps us do it every day for you and uh, helps take this thing full-time in January 2010. Uh, sponsor the day number one, Tea Party Silver. Beautiful coins. A couple new ones came out. Every time I think I got every one that they have, they come out with a couple more. And Hey, man, I'll just make it my silver purchase for the month. And uh, They've got some, some new ones, but the Tea Party ones themselves are probably the prettiest ones. I don't know that they have a walking liberty that, that, that looks like the uh, walking Walking Liberty half dollar. That's beautiful. Um, but silver is a good investment. Um, these are great coins. A little bit of numismatic value. Mostly the value is in the purity of the silver itself. Not much over spot price for silver eagles. Hey, great place to buy your coins. Check it out. Next one is Tactical Response Gear. James Yeager and his folks. Check out Tactical Response Gear. Great equipment. Great stuff. Great training. Great training DVDs. Got to check out Tactical Response Gear. And consider going to Tactical Response and taking some training hands-on with James. I know you'll enjoy it. Uh, next, make sure you're getting involved with our forum. That is it for today with the forum. Next, member support brigade. You think this show's worth more than 20 cents an episode? Every time you listen, you think, I ought to pay two dimes for that. If so, consider joining the member support brigade. You'll help support the show and get exclusive content available only to members, including now well over $100 worth of retail value stuff given to you free on day one. Ebooks, discounts from vendors, discount clubs, I just a tremendous amount of stuff, um, and I'll tell you one more thing that we've added in just a second because now I got to tell you the big one today. It's time to start voting for the Survival Podcast as Podcast of the Year in the general category at the Podcast Awards. There'll be a link in today's show notes. I still haven't figured out how to do a reminder for you guys, um, but I think I, I can maybe find an email reminder service that people can manage themselves today. But you can vote every day, as I understand it, one time every day between now and the end of the year, not the end of November, as I saw on the forum thread. I'll check and make sure of that, but please check out the survivalpodcast.com today. Check out the show notes. 
up some of these. Please vote for us and get your friends and family and whatever. Just say, hey, there's this guy. I want to do him a favor. Can you vote for his show? Maybe it's a soft way to, to, to sell the show to them. All right. With that, um, before I get into today's list, I want to tell you something that I added uh, to the YouTube channel, and I've made the addition to the members' brigade of the other side of it. Um, I've been asked about beer bread since, like, the first time I talked about it. We do a video on beer bread. I'm like, well, you pretty much mix the stuff together and bake it. So I went ahead and I did a video on beer bread yesterday. It came out really good, and uh, we used it with a new equipment. Uh, turn your volume down a little bit. I think I, I'm still going a little bit high with the gain here uh, with my remote mics being a little bit paranoid from bad audio in the past. Uh, the audio is great. It's just loud. You'll be listening to one thing and it'll be way down here and you listen to my video way up. But a full video on how to make beer bread, um, everything you need to do to do it right. You get to see uh, a great, great produced uh, piece of bread come out in the second part of the video. Now I took that video and YouTube has a new feature called Download MP4 and it's only for the owner of the content. In other words, if you have a YouTube channel and you upload a video then you can download a very good quality but highly compressed MPEG-4 of it, which, of course, is iPod compliant. So what I'm doing from now on, and it's going to take me a while to get them all done, is I'm taking not the reviews, but every instructional type of video or entertainment type of video that I do on YouTube, I'm sucking that down, that, that MP4 down, I'm putting it in the members' brigade. So why would you want that? You can watch it on YouTube because it's portable, because you can watch it without an Internet connection, because you can put it on your iPod. So that's a new benefit for members, but that's going to mean that I'm putting most video going forward that's not being done for DVDs into the YouTube channel. So if you're not a YouTube subscriber, make sure you do that. I know it went long, and I say, but hey, it's this part of the show. This isn't housekeeping. Beer bread video for everybody on YouTube. Check it out today. All right. So with that, we're going to go into the list of 18. Now, here is the interesting part, item number one, uh, with the video I did yesterday. This was not planned. It just worked out this way. Not all of the things in this list of 18 are things. Some of them are skills. And, again, they all come from you, the audience, not from me. Item number one suggested in the comments thread was baking and cooking skills. So, sometimes I think people wonder, why does this guy talk so much about how to cook food, how to prepare food, how to grow food? One guy even sent me an email one time and said, Jack, what are you going to do next? Tell me how to make a cherry pie? And I, I emailed him back, kind of smart-ass, and I said, I might, um, but I don't have a cherry tree, so maybe I'll show you how to make peach cobbler since i got a peach tree. But uh, you go eat your beef jerky, and I'll eat my peach cobbler and my beef jerky. We'll see who's happier. But I, I think there's a real, you know, there's still a bit of a stigma in American life that, you know, the women do the cooking. And I don't think that that was ever that way in the past because it wasn't manly to cook. It was because that people had to work so hard just to get by. Before we had mechanized everything, distribution, everything, you know, the the internal combustion engine, climate control, electricity. Before that, people had to work so hard just to get by, there had to be a division of, of labor. And men is the physically stronger, not mentally, but physically stronger sex, in general, did the hard labor. And that left cooking as one of the things that women do. And I think it's how I got that label. Because I think that men, if you've never cooked, when you start cooking, 
cooking, there's a lot of pleasure that you get from cooking because, again, we're going back to things where you're behaving like a human being. And gathering food, hunting food, and cooking food is extremely human, and it's very manly, folks. It really is. And I think that men should learn to cook just as much, if not more so, than women. And I'll put it to you this way. Nobody says it's not manly when a guy's out in the middle of the woods roasting a squirrel over a fire. Well, if he'd spend a little bit of time in the kitchen, he might learn to make that squirrel taste a little bit better, even out there roasting it over the fire. And then the other thing is, I don't know how many of you guys watched the series The Colony. I thought it was decent. A lot of stupidity and ass clownery in it, but it did teach me some things. And if it taught me some things, hopefully it taught you some things. One of the greatest skill sets there was the guy that knew how to cook. They could take the spices and seasonings and stuff they could scrape up, and he cooked rat, and he made rat taste good. So, shit hit the fan scenario. People with a skill set of making food taste good have a highly valuable skill set. It wasn't that long ago that people like the butcher, the baker, those guys were the upper middle class because they had a skill set that not everybody else possessed. So baking and cooking, I think, are skills that everybody should work on, and it should be considered part of your preparation kit. And remember, we prep to live life better today, even if nothing goes wrong. Cooking definitely fills that one. The next one was interesting. I talked about how brewing and venting uh, uh, materials uh, and the knowledge to know how to brew and make wine and uh, make mead and other things like that, and having that as a skill set and a material set in the last episode. Well, somebody says, well, what about, you know, brewing and making wine or even making bread if you don't have any more, any yeasts? What methods are there for that and having those methods? Well, here's, here's the, the easy answer, folks. Get a good stockpile of yeast, keep it fresh, and learn how to propagate yeast. If you do that, you can never run out. Um, I don't homebrew much right now because of the time constraints and all. It's something I'm really looking get, to get back into when we make our move in March. Um, but when I was homebrewing regularly, I only bought a yeast of a particular variety one time, and I never paid for it again. When you're making beer and you're bottle fermenting and bottle conditioning your ale or your lager, what I mean by that is at the very end you add a little bit of sugar to a five-gallon batch, you bottle everything, you cap it. There's a little secondary fermentation that goes on in the bottle. That carbonates it because the CO2 builds up pressure, pressurizes in the bottle, makes your beer have all those nice little bubbles in it. Since we're not the store and we're not pasteurizing, any product made that way, a wine, a beer, an ale, has living yeast left in it. All you need to propagate your yeast is about a half ounce of the last bottle and add in a, some type of a sugar or a malt sugar or a honey mixture and uh, make sure it's clean and sterile when you do that and you'll get that yeast culture going again and that can be pitched into your next batch of that variety of ale yeast, uh, ale or lager or wine or meat or whatever it is. Much the same with, with yeast for making bread. If you have a little starter ball and you save it and you keep it sealed up so it doesn't go sour, which you can make sourdough and that's a good thing too, but if you keep that little ball separate and, and chilled and, and free from air, the next day you can make another loaf of bread out of it. There will be enough yeast in that little ball. A 
and yeast stores extremely well, and it's very, very inexpensive. So there you go. Now, let's say you didn't have any yeast at all. Can you can you can you get yeast? Yes, but your results are going to be mixed because you're going to get a lot of wild nasties in there. And uh, there's even types of beer that are made that way on purpose. One is called lambic or lambic, depending on how you say it. I say it lambic, and uh, it's made in Belgium. It's a wonderful beer. It's got this sour, tart taste to it. Uh, the problem with you replicating it is it's only made in like a 10-mile radius around Brussels, where the, the wild yeast is indigenous to that area, and there's certain temperatures. And, and with these types of ales like that, there's actually like one type of microorganism will start to uh, ferment the ale. And once the alcohol and acidity levels reach a certain point, that organism will actually die off, and another one becomes dominant. So doing that in Texas or Pennsylvania, you probably are going to get a pretty poor result. Now, sourdough, there's some things you can do with that, but I would just say, for the yeast issue, make yeast part of your storage. Um, next one was a great one, one I've actually talked about in the past. Uh, I've talked about, uh, you know, uh, machetes and hatchets and things like that. The guy on the comments section said, what about a good set of uh, lopper pruners? Absolutely. Absolutely. I had a tree go down on our driveway, blocked the truck in, blocked the car in. Fortunately, it didn't damage anything. Uh, well, it happened right after we came back from vacation, you know. I got to get up in the morning, go back to work for the first day, and I get there and my, my car and my truck are blocked in by a tree. We used the chainsaw quite a bit because uh, it was a big tree. But what we started out with was a good, solid pair of loppers. And I actually have two different uh, sets of loppers. I have a really big set uh, for cutting larger uh, limbs. And I have a little bit smaller of a set. Why would you need a smaller set? Because it gets tiring after a while, and the smaller limbs are just a hell of a lot easier to cut with a smaller pair of loppers. So I'm big on loppers. I also think there's a safety issue there. Uh, a lot of times when a tree's down, it's not all the way down, and there's a tremendous amount of pressure being applied by side branches. It is a lot safer to stand back uh, with a light pair of loppers and remove as many of those branches causing tension as you can, pull them out of the way, and get clear access to the larger trunks that you need to cut uh, and allow that tree to move however it wants to while you have something lightweight and not really dangerous in your hands rather than a heavy running chainsaw. So there's a tremendous advantage to having loppers for all types of uh, weather scenarios or just maybe getting by day to day with life, uh, trimming trees. I'd rather trim a tree with loppers as long as I can reach what I need to cut uh, than use a chainsaw or anything uh, heavy and uh, noise making any day as long as the branches are within a reasonable size. So loppers, definitely something on the list. Most homeowners uh, that have trees in the yard probably already own a pair, but maybe you didn't consider them part of your preps. Let me back up just a second as we're going through this today to tell you part of why we're doing this. It's not just to find the items and the skills that get left out. It's to make you aware of a lot of the items and the skills that you already have so that the day comes where they need to be used, um, you're aware of it. Now i got to tell you this, guys, folks. This is, this is hilarious. Um, I just missed an opportunity to get a bunch of free food. <laughs> I just drove over about 500 bags of Fritos. 
I guess a truck has got an open door or something, but they didn't look very good uh, for eating anymore. But anyway, the skills and the things, knowing they're there is the important part. You could give two people a house with the exact same stuff in it and have them be mostly aware of what's in that house and put them both in the same disaster scenario, and one will make it a lot better than the other if they've thought about how all those items in that house can be applied to a disaster. And then the other one will sit there and suffer when a solution's right in front of them because they've never run the mental scenarios. And because of that, during the time of stress, they just can't think. So they don't act. And they sit and they take it on the chin when they could be fighting back. So that's why part of why we're doing this. So on that note, the next one is a chainsaw. Now, I didn't let mention this in my list because I, I did another show similar to this a while ago and I talked about it. But it, it, it probably does bear repeating. And I had quite a few people suggest it in different ways. Uh, the comments section, by email, on the forum, you name it. It's a, it's a hot item. And it is a prepper item. And it's something I think every prepper should own. Um, I really think there's uh, not a lot of really good saws out there. I think the best saw made is a steel. I think the Husk- Husqvarna is a very close second for a lot less money. Uh, I have an 18-inch uh, Husqvarna, and I really love my saw. And I think it's a hell of a good saw. If I didn't have $400 to invest in a saw, and I wanted a saw, would I go out and buy a $120 pull-in or something like that? Um, as long as I'm not in debt, and as long as I'm pretty well prepped, you know, overall, I probably would. If, if it was between no saw and a $120 pulling. Um, but I would see that as a backup saw, long term, short term to be used, and taken very, very good care of. Because it just doesn't have the robustness of something like a Husqvarna or a steel or even a McCall. So I, I would go with a cheap saw as a backup. In fact, I'm really contemplating right now. Home Depot's got like a 16-inch Pullin' Pro on sale for like 119 bucks, and I'm really thinking about picking one up. And you say, why? If you have this great saw, because of the old adage: two is one, and one is none. My Husqvarna can break, even though it's a good saw. On that note, with your saw, at least one extra bar and two extra chains, oil, gas, um, and most saws, every saw that I know of anyway, is two-cycle, so two-cycle lubricant to go with it. Uh, Many saws have grease fittings, if so, grease fittings. Uh, The tools and knowledge to use it properly, uh, you need to have a way to adjust your chain tension. Most come with kind of a uh, one-piece does-all tool. I actually have a dedicated little rack ratchet set, screwdriver set that stays with my saw. Uh, that I, and I keep that ba- that other tool that came with it as a backup tool. Uh, files for sharpening the blades. Absolutely one of the most valuable things you can have, especially during weather disasters and in many other situations as well. The next one's real interesting. And it's something I can't believe I kind of left out because it's on my big, I want to buy one of those lists and I need to get off my butt and do it. And it's a scythe. And if you don't know what a scythe is, if you've never heard of that before, if you've ever seen pictures of the Grim Reaper and he's holding that great big sickle-looking thing, that's a scythe. That's not a very effective scythe in most of the pictures of the Grim Reaper I've seen because his handle's nice and straight. A good scythe handle is kind of made out of bends so that it can be held with two hands. And it's worked in a very arching. And the person that mentioned it called it a Tai Chi motion. And she's right. It is a Tai Chi motion. And it is a very... I don't know, it's another one of those very grounding things to take a scythe and to cut a field or to even just cut weeds with it. 
We used to have this huge uh, stripping bank behind our house in Pennsylvania, and uh, every summer it would grow thick with weeds. And at some point, my grandmother would go, you know what to do, and hand me this old beat-up scythe we had. And it would probably take me several weeks because I'd do a little piece of it at a time. And I'd go up there and I'd chop all the weeds down and I'd put them on the compost pile. I would directly use them for uh, uh, for mulching. And uh, it, it was actually, even though I was a teenage kid and it was work and I had to do it, it was actually pretty pleasurable to do. And because I wasn't ridden about it and said, you know, it's got to be done by the end of the week, like I was with some of my chores, it was just kind of like, hey, just keep cutting this through the summer. And I did it a piece at a time, like, you know, eating an elephant. I really enjoyed it. And uh, we use a lot of weed eaters up in Arkansas to keep the, the, the place cut while we're not there to maintain it. Uh, but I'm going to go to a, a scythe as a primary cutting implement when we move there. I like less noise. I like less maintenance. I like less annoyance. And the person that suggested it said something that's really important to understand. A scythe, while a simple tool, an ancient tool, is a complex technology to build one the right way. It's pretty easy if you have to to improvise and make a knife or a hatchet or a machete. It's not easy to build a scythe with raw materials. It is a very specific skill to do it right in a way that it will be effective. Uh, So I definitely think that the scythe was a good suggestion. Another suggestion was first aid gear. And I have to apologize for you guys. I do not talk enough about first aid. And it's because it's one of my bigger weaknesses. And it's because I have a nurse with 25 years of clinical experience uh, to fall back on in the household. And let that be the thing that she takes care of. So she's put together our first aid kits and things like that. Um, But I do think a good solid first aid kit is something you definitely need to have. Again, I think this is something a lot of people probably do have. And I think this is one that most preppers do think of as preps. So why did I put it on the list? Because I just became aware of something new that I'd never heard of before. And uh, it came to me from my buddy Brian over at ITS Tactical. And I want you guys to check out ITS Tactical today. Again, ITS Tactical, like it's tactical, but it actually has imminent threat solutions. You need to check out this guy's YouTube channel. He has some amazing videos. He has like a whole series of videos just on how to escape from zip ties in all different types of scenarios for if you're being detained illegally. That's the kind of cool shit this guy has. And he's, you got, you, he's a good dude. You can trust him. This guy's, I drink beer with this guy. He's coming over to my house this weekend. Um, so he is a guy um, that you can, you can, you know, trust the information. You can trust what he's telling you. Um, on that note, he gave me something I'm going to be reviewing. I don't know if I'll get it done this weekend or not. It'll be next week probably. But it's called a blowout kit. Right? This is not a you know a misnamed bug out kit. It is a blowout kit. Think about it like if your tire blows out, gets a hole in it, you need to patch it. A blowout kit is a patch kit for a human being. It's designed to treat the three leading causes of preventable death on the battlefield or simply in the field from car accidents or anything else that could happen. And I think if you're like, like if you're a first responder, you got to have one. If you're an EMT, you, you you do have one, right? But I mean, if you're like a police officer or something like that that may be there waiting for medical help, you should have one of these things. He's put together a great one. Uh, again, I'll be doing a review on it, but what a blowout kit uh, prevents is it has things in it to prevent or stop extremity hemorrhage, which is 60% of deaths in the field are from extremity hemorrhage. Uh, a collapsed lung or um, hemothorax, which is basically where blood gets in between the lung and the chest wall. And because of that, 
you can't get the lung to inflate anymore. The air comes out and it won't inflate. So uh, cath needles and and uh, to get the blood out of the lungs, not out of the lungs, but out of the out of that that pocket. And that accounts for almost 30% of deaths in the field. And the, the final one, 6% of deaths in the field, is airway obstruction and having a way to open an airway. So I, I won't go deep into a blowout kit. You can wait for the review. But I think that's something to add to kind of that first aid kit. And the way a blowout kit is traditionally carried when you're engaged in dangerous activities. So let's say events your sports or um, you are a first response or a SWAT team or something like that or you're a soldier. It's just carried on your person and your blowout kit for you. And everybody on that team has a blowout kit for themselves. So that if you come up to a downed comrade, everybody carries it in the same place. You pull it out, and it's there and available. So there's clotting agents, uh, specific types of gauzes, uh, ways to close uh, chest cavity wounds. Really cool idea to have. And I know some of you guys are going, I'm not a cop, and I don't plan on going out and fighting a war or anything like that. But you drive an extremely dangerous vehicle every day. And uh, odds are if you're carrying one and you're in a wreck, it might not do you very much good because whoever shows up until the true emergency responders get there, nobody's probably going to know what to do with it. But um, you might be able to save somebody else's life. And I think the way Brian put in his life is, is the expense and uh, necessary training uh, and inconvenience of carrying a blowout kit in your vehicle and, and maybe on your person in certain situations um, worth saving one life if you ever have the opportunity to do so. And his answer was absolutely yes. And I think that's a good one to look at. So hopefully you learned something new today. I learned something new when he handed me this thing and told me what it was and what it did. Um, The next one is cast iron cookware. Good skillet or griddle and a Dutch oven. Absolutely. And there's another one I don't talk about much, and I don't do a ton of cast iron cooking. We do have a beautiful cast iron skillet. I need to get a Dutch oven. I think it's because I'm such a grill freak. And I have a charcoal grill, and I have a side box smoker, and I have a gas grill. And I'm going to cook on one of those, right? This weekend, guys, I'm sorry you can't come, man. Brian's coming over, and we are going to slam some spare ribs and baby backs. They're going to be side box smoked for about six hours. Um... <laughs> I don't know if you're local to the Mansfield area and you want to shoot me an email, maybe I'll give you an invite. Um, but cast iron cookware is absolutely what everybody used up until, you know, the, the stainless steel and Teflon revolution. And um, I, I see Teflon cookware go bad all the time, even a really good Teflon cookware. My grandmother used to cook with this great big skillet, and an egg would slide across that cast iron skillet like butter because it had been seasoned for years and years and years. The big thing is seasoning your cast iron cookware right. It's pretty simple. You coat it with oil. You use a gentle heat. You do it. For you know, you keep doing it over and over again. Uh, start out your first meals that you cook it. Cook greasy stuff. You know, cook bacon. Um, cook anything that, that has a, a natural grease to it. And in time, you'll develop a coating on that that just blows away any uh, any. Thing that's available from like Teflon or any of these other new cook coatings. Um, and it cooks amazing. It retains heat and it distributes heat beautifully. And Dutch oven cooking is something that uh, I plan on doing a lot more of in the future, especially once we move in. I'll tell you what, using a clay oven in some Dutch oven cooking, that'd be kind of cool. And remember that uh, that, that uh, ebook. Even if you're not a, a member, support brigade member, I recommend that ebook from uh, Mr. Kohut. And uh, I'll put a link to his site today. Check out that clay oven ebook. Eighteen bucks. I read it, and I'm like, I could go build one of these now. Uh, so maybe we'll add clay oven as a uh, as a bonus item. 
Next one were tarps. Couldn't agree more. Tarps, tarps, and more tarps. As many tarps as you can store in a fort. Uh, they're, they're so multi-purpose. They have so many functions. Um, what I'd, what I'd like to see more availability and affordability on, though, are military-style tarps that are made out of heavy canvas rather than this, this thin plastic stuff. Um, the canvas lasts a lot longer. It weighs more. It's a little bit more bulky. Um, but there's a reason that the military uses it for their tents and for their canvases and for their shelter halves. And I would add to your tarps, I would consider this part of your tarps, getting a couple of good old-fashioned GI shelter halves uh, that are designed to either make like one side a lean-to or two sides put together a tent. Um, probably four of those might not be a bad idea to have around because they are very, very multi-purpose. So tarps definitely go on the list. And again, this is something you probably have some tarps. Just make sure that if you're ever in an emergency scenario, it's part of your mental computer that, hey, those are available, and how can they be improvised in this situation to remedy it? The next one I found interesting, nails, screws, lumber, and plywood. Definitely for having some lumber and plywood stored to clean, safe, dry place where they won't warp that's available if the shit hits the fan. As much as you can have, the better. Definitely. But, let's face it, if we need wood, wood can be improvised. It's called a tree. Plenty of trees out there, uh, and with some good hand tools even, you can get by that way. You know what is hard to improvise? Nails and screws. Nails and screws are hard to, hard to do without. You know, you can't build a house with cordage. You can build a uh, you know, a shelter with cordage, but not a house. And what people did in the days before nails, they, they built pegs. And there were guys their entire life, all they ever, all they ever did. You know, like some people are a, a, a brewer, or some people would be a baker. That guy was a peg maker, right? He made pegs, wooden pegs that were designed to fit into specific holes. And everybody that built with that guy's pegs, whenever they were cutting something that needed to be fitted together, cut the hole that size. And he was the peg guy. That's how valuable the skill was because it was necessary and it has to be built out of certain types of wood. A lot of wood that you can run long with won't handle shearing force. So, up in the, with the days of nails. This is a story that I learned from one of my history teachers, an enlightened history teacher, that taught us things that, you know, even though this is 20 years ago, I haven't thought about it till today. As soon as I saw the suggestion, I remembered it. That's a real teacher. And uh, what he told us was that a lot of times people that maybe had a house and um, had settled in the east and decided they were going to move further west would be going to you know pick up, pack up a wagon and, and head out the covered wagon type scenario. Well, they would take anything they could carry that was part of their home. Uh, maybe they would take down something like a window frame or something and take it because it was hard to replace and uh, it was small enough to go with them. But obviously you can't take all the wood from your house and put it into one or two covered wagons and head west with the family. You know what they did with their houses? They burned them. They burned down their houses if nobody wanted to buy their house. Because in many scenarios, these people were living in pretty ramshackle houses. That's why they were willing to pick up and move west in a, in a, in a, in a, you know, in a carriage. 
You know, they weren't going to, you know, uh, head head west the way that the wealthy did or even the well-to-do did. They were poor and dirt poor, and they were going to go be dirt poor somewhere else and see if they could build a new life. That was the pioneering spirit. Now, why would they burn down their house? If nothing else, why would they just leave it there? Because one of the most valuable things in their house didn't burn. It was the nails. And they would burn their house to the ground as the last thing that they would do. Everything they couldn't sell, trade, hawk, or barter... And burn that house down, and once it was done burning, they would go through all the ashes, pick out all the nails, so that when they got to a new place, they could use whatever wood or things that they could find, but they had nails, because they're wanting a nail store out there. You really got to think about how desperate a human would be to burn their home down to get to a nail to understand how valuable a nail really is when you don't have them. So nails and screws, you bet, that's a prep. There was another great suggestion, a wheelbarrow or a good solid garden cart. You know, if we get into a situation where gas is at, you know, a major premium and hard to come by and we've got a real shit at the fan, uh, moving things around with a pickup truck may not be very feasible. Or even if you have some gas, you may not want to use it unless you absolutely have to. And uh, if you ever start carrying a lot of heavy stuff back and forth to move things around and get something done, uh, you'll really appreciate any kind of a cart or a wheelbarrow uh, to maximize human effort. Again, I think it's something a lot of homeowners have, but do you consider it a prep? Do you even think about it as a prep? Um, there may be a scenario where you have to move a lot of stuff, and in a stressful environment, if you've never thought about this, believe it or not, there might be ten guys carrying stuff while a wheelbarrow sits idle. I've seen it happen. I actually saw that one happen. Saw a bunch of guys, and they were they were moving uh, stuff from a, a tree down, and uh, I had offered to help them. And we're carrying it out of the way, and I just happened to go into the backyard. I don't remember what drove me back there, but um, got back there. There's a wheelbarrow sitting against the fence. I brought the wheelbarrow out. Everybody's like, oh, that's a great idea. Homeowner goes, man, I forgot I had that. So that's what I'm saying. you got to drill this stuff. In your head, at least. The next one, this is one I thought of as I was reading all this, because I have this wheelbarrow of my own that constantly goes flat, and I haven't replaced a tire yet, but it's a slow leak, so I just pump it up with a foot pump. I think a good foot pump, and I mean a good, robust, not a cheapy foot pump, a good manual air pump, something that's capable of actually putting air in a car tire. It might take you a long time, but there are ones out there that are capable of doing it. The air compressor is the way to go until there's no power. You got a flat tire, you got a low air tire, and a good foot pump kept in your car um, will allow you to uh, get air back in the tire. Now, for what you keep in your car, I have one of these little bitty air compressors. You plug into your 12 volt lighter, and I keep that in the car and one in the truck. Now, the reason I do that is if the vehicle doesn't have any electrical power, a flat tire doesn't really matter, does it? Because I'm not going anywhere anyway. So as long as you have a vehicle that's operational, that'll work. But I think a good foot pump is a good idea to have around the house, especially for things that you may have to rely on and it shouldn't hit the fan, like uh, motorcycles, bicycles, uh, garden carts, wheelbarrows, things like that. A flat wheelbarrow is no help at all. It really isn't. Um, the next one that I have is insect repellent. This came from a forum suggestion. Um, we have insect repellent in all our bug out bags. 
We have a couple cans of it underneath the uh, sink. But it's something that I've never really made part of my preps. I don't have, you know, a bin somewhere, and one of the things in there is a dozen or so cans of insect repellent. I should. I absolutely should. Uh, It's not just a convenience item either. If we get into a real shit at the fan where sanitation becomes an issue, you know, the, the, the big type of collapse, not the one that we prepare for the most, but the one that we're aware of could occur someday. One of the biggest spreaders of disease is insects. Malaria is not a problem in the United States right now. But it's not a problem because of the way that we handle things, not because it can't happen here. And, you know, West Nile virus is a perfect example of something that was never a problem and all of a sudden showed up one day. And you don't know what's going to show up next. And the very next plague may not be bird flu or any type of flu. It may be something spread on the, on the you know, the, the blood-sucking needle of a mosquito. There's, there's no way to know. And insect repellent in that scenario might be the most valuable substance on the planet. And even if that's not the problem, if we end up in a real shit at the fan, trust me, not being chewed to death by insects when you have to be outside has a lot of value to it, especially when you can't run down to the store and buy another can. So I am making insect repellent part of my main preps, not just some stuff in my bug-out bag anymore. Uh, another one was baking soda. Multi-uses, cooking, scrubbing. Um, I think one of the things people don't realize is that uh, baking soda and, uh, and water then put onto battery terminals is a great way to clean battery terminals. It can be used as uh, toothpaste. Uh, it can be used to keep things from stinking. It has so many uses. Uh, baking soda definitely belongs as part of your preps. Um, the next one is medications. And I want to be clear about what I mean here. I'm not just talking about if you have a maintenance dose of a medication, getting as much as you can and refilling from there and rotating your stock. That's definitely something you should do. But I also believe that anytime you get an opportunity to get a hold of medication that has real applications, I'm not talking about medicating yourself with roofie pills or something like this, folks. I'm talking about extra antibiotics or anything like that. If you have a prescription for something, and there may be technical illegalities about what I'm going to tell you, so you decide how you want to analyze. But you run out of a pres- you run out of your prescription. Your problem is gone. You don't need any more. But it came with a refill. It's yours. It's legal to go get it refilled. I don't see any problem with going to get it refilled and vacuum sealing it and putting it away. Uh, penicillin, ampicillin, ethromyotrisin, uh, tetracycline, all of these antibiotics. Huge, huge value in a shit in the fan scenario. And some of the pain medications as well. I don't like to talk about that as much because there's a big potential. There's not a lot of potential for the abuse of ethromycin as a recreational drug. Um, you know, hydrocodone, yeah, there's a huge risk there. But, boy, you might really need that someday when you can't get your hands on it. So you do what you want with that information. But if you take medication and you keep it relatively climate controlled and vacuum sealed, it'll never become dangerous or go bad. It's, it's effectiveness will wane in time. And all you can do with like vacuum sealing is, is retain the efficacy. I can't see the word. So the effectiveness for a longer period of time. And 
And um, so it won't hurt to have it. And I think that the person in the forum said, whatever you can get your hands on because you don't know what you're going to need. And I think he's right, as long as you do it by legal means. Um, the next one is uh, trap materials. And a couple of the ones that were recommended, I'm highly in favor of our rat traps and uh, either picture wire or actually getting true snare wire. And you can make a pretty cool snare um, with picture wire and a penny. And basically, you bend the penny at just a little over a 45-degree angle. You drill a hole in one side and use that as your stop lock, and you use your picture wire, and you wire it to one end of your picture wire, put the other end through it, and set that on a game trail. It makes a very effective snare. Um, so I'm big on the trapping materials. Another type of trap, though, that I think you may really want to add uh, maybe a dozen or half a dozen of these things is a good old-fashioned conibear trap, which you need some training on using, and possibly some good old-fashioned coil spring one and a half. Uh, vector leg called double coil spring traps. Traps need to be treated though. Those type of conibears and those uh, we used to treat ours with the, the husks of uh, black walnuts. But they need to be treated or they'll rust. And they'll rust very badly in the field. And trapping's a skill but even if you're not going to practice it often having some trapping equipment around is probably a good idea. Uh, because you can always feed yourself with squirrels and rats. Um, good old fashioned rat traps tacked to a tree, you know all the way around a tree and just set even with no bait. Sooner or later, you're going to get a squirrel. So just some things to think about. That's not exactly legal use, but we're talking about having them and being prepared for emergencies with them. Uh, a good old-fashioned rat trap and some snare wire belongs in all your wilderness kits too, guys. A tremendous amount of utility there. Here was an interesting one, spices. Um... Somebody pointed out how inexpensive it is to buy a bunch of spices. And I'll tell you what, if you took your vacuum sealer and you vacuum sealed up a whole, like a whole bucket full of different spices and, and seasonings and threw them in a five-gallon bucket and threw an oxygen absorber in there and put a, a sealed lid on there and stuck that bucket in a closet somewhere, I'd probably be there 10 years and those things would still be good. I mean, they're designed for long-term storage, so if you enhance it like that. So that's one I really think. It's simple, easy. Uh, it allows you to do so much more with those cooking and baking skills that we talked about. Uh, it's easy, it's cheap, it's effective, and you have nothing to lose. And if you ever need something, I guess you could, if you vacuum seal individually and don't worry about the O2 seal, you could always go in there and pull something out. Uh, maybe you vacuum seal into smaller components so it's more uh, usable that way. But just a thought there on the spices. Here's another one I thought was simple to do. Uh, not real expensive and, and pretty smart. Sets of spark plugs for everything. You got a car, it's a four-cylinder, you need four plugs that are designed for that car. And I'll add to that suggestion wires. Um, a set of plug wires as well for anything that has you know, a plug wire set because spark plugs are not always the problem when you have fire issues with a vehicle. Sometimes it's the wires themselves. Um, so plugs and wires for all your vehicles and spark plugs for all your equipment. I was going to say it when I did a chainsaw, but I held off because I knew this one was here. Uh, so yeah, chainsaw should have and things that are like inexpensive and heavy, hard use, like two-cycle engines and stuff like that, three or four plugs. I mean, they're, they're three or four bucks a piece, right? So your, your, your chainsaw, maybe a, a three or four extra plugs uh, that stay with that, because um, that'll take you out a pretty good long time. Same with your lawnmowers. Anything that's a small engine, three or four plugs that use one or two cylinders, uh, three or four 
plugs per cylinder. And the guy that made a suggestion pointed out, you know, on the um, on Gilligan's Island show, even the professor couldn't make a spark plug. Spark plug is not something you can improvise and make. Um, if you don't have one, you don't have one. There's a, you know, a, a lot of times people will hear, well, that I was a mechanic in the Army, and they'll have a vehicle with a problem. And they'll say, like, can you just fix it? I'm like, well, I, just because I'm a mechanic doesn't mean I can lay hands on it. Um, a lot of times there is something I can improvise and uh, take care of and get done uh, to get a vehicle at least running well enough to get to help. But if it's a it's a key component and it's not functioning anymore and it's critical to the vehicle's functioning, if I don't have the part, I can't make it go. Well, my truck broke down uh, in Arkansas uh, where the transmission modulator went out. Uh, it's an electronically controlled tra- transmission. Uh, the modulator tells it when to shift. The modulator doesn't work. He doesn't know what gear to go in. It won't run. And in no way in hell without that part can you fix it. So spark plugs are one of those parts. And they're, the reason, like, well, you can't carry everything. You can't have everything. You can't have a complete second vehicle waiting to pull parts off of. But with older vehicles, sometimes people do it. They go to a junkyard, and they find a, an exact model like theirs that's just beat to hell in a junkyard. And they buy it for 200 bucks and they throw it in the back of the yard and let weeds grow over it. And it's always there as a, uh, a harvest vehicle. But, but something like a spark plug is something anybody uh, with, a, with some reasonable uh, intelligence, uh, a basic set of hand tools and a manual can learn how to properly remove, replace, and properly gap uh, new spark plugs. So it's something anybody can learn to do. That's why it makes sense to have those. Um, the last one I thought is really important, and in my days, early days of selling VOIP phone service online, I actually talked about this in several articles that I wrote, and that is having a wired phone. And I don't mean um, you have a phone line in your house and you have a cordless phone, and it's plugged into the wall. So when I say wired phone, I'm not talking about, you know, not just not having a cell phone as your only phone. Um, but a wired phone in that that $9 piece of crap phone at Walmart that plugs directly into the phone jack and doesn't need any electricity to work in the house for that phone to come on. Because here's the thing people don't think about their cordless phones. I shut the power off to your house. Your phone service still works. Your cordless phones do not. They don't work. Why don't they work? Because the the receiver needs power to run and to operate. So without backup power to turn that on, even if it's just the power that's out, the phone service is still up, guess what? No phone. Bad enough scenario, it's very possible that you could also have cellular outages or maybe your cell phone doesn't work or you've used it as long as you can without power. Who knows? But if you have a wired phone, you pick it up. As long as that line gets back to the central office, there's still dial tone there. It'll work when nothing else will. And the other thing that goes along with it is a current phone book. I mean, most people today throw their phone books away. They compost them. They don't want them. Uh, but that's because we rely on the Internet so much. Well, in a situation where the Internet's down because power's down, that old-fashioned phone book is very useful. Uh, even if all the lines are down, including your, your wired phone, your wired phone doesn't work, but your cellular works, that phone book is still valuable. So that doesn't sound like a prep to a lot of people, but I think it's a good thing to think about, know about, be aware of uh, for emergency situations. And that wraps up our list today, and I'm going to try to do another list of 18. I think these are fun shows, and they make us think and get outside of the box. Um, with that, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up. Hey, please remember, uh, get by the survivalpodcast.com today. Uh, make sure that you vote for 
for us every time you can uh, in the podcast awards. Uh, check out the gear shop on the site now. There's a great big badge, TSP gear shop, shirts, uh, stuff like that. Check that out. And uh, make sure you're availing yourself of all the things that are available on the site, the form, you name it. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream and you can holler, it really doesn't matter cause it all gets spent.